You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Well, I want to invite you to turn open your copy of God's Word once again to the Gospel of Matthew. Today we find ourselves in Matthew 16, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 12. So, turn over to Matthew 16. Follow along with me as I read our passage for us, beginning in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came... And to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing it among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, have you ever experienced deja vu? I'm guessing most of you have. I'm seeing a lot of nods up here. You know what deja vu is, right? It's that feeling of familiarity. It's that moment when you think that you've experienced something new but or something old but it's it's not it's new you walk into a new space and you think well i've been here before you contract a new sickness and you think well i've definitely had this you meet a stranger but you feel as though you've known them your whole life it's a very odd experience isn't it sometimes it feels like an out of body experience and funny enough most people experience it during the evenings and weekends did you know that it's just an odd thing I read about deja vu this week. I have no idea why this is. Apparently, neither did the scientists. In fact, scientists aren't really sure what causes deja vu. But most generally believe it's related to the memory in some way. So it could be because you've, you know, something feels familiar because you've gone through a similar event before, but that's not always the case. One study states 97% of people are thought to have experienced deja vu at least once, with more than two-thirds of people experiencing it with some regularity. 
And in fact, according to one study, those who experience deja vu more regularly share the following characteristics. Listen to these. They're really odd. They have higher income. They are well-educated. They travel frequently. They remember their dreams. They are politically liberal. They are between the ages of 15 and 25, and they are stressed. What an odd combination, right? How do people even come up with this? In any case, why do I point out such meaningless facts about deja vu? Because I am guessing that after we've just read our text that there's at least a few of you that are experiencing some deja vu. Because as we look at what we've just read in Matthew, what do we notice in verse 1? Look there, we read, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So it's just a familiar scene here, isn't it? As Jesus is being approached once again by a group of religious leaders who are clearly up to no good, trying to make trouble in Jesus' neighborhood. I'm sorry, I won't go any farther than that. Now, maybe you haven't been with us, so you don't realize how familiar of a scene this is. So let me just point out a few cases where we have seen this before. The first time that this happened in Matthew is Matthew 9, verse 11. Now, certainly this is not the first time the Pharisees appear, but it is the first time they seem to be causing trouble. And you'll remember the scene in Matthew 9, Jesus is eating with a group of people that the Pharisees absolutely disdain. Uh, Certainly, they are kind of a motley crew, and uh, they are looking at this group of sinners that Jesus is dining with, and they're going, "Why, why would a rabbi ever be dining with these kinds of people? Doesn't he know that These folks will make him unclean. And so they say to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And shall just disdain. Worthy to note is just how passive-aggressive the Pharisees are at this point. Notice how they don't go to Jesus directly. They go to his disciples. Eventually, though, this will all change because by the time you get to Matthew 12, what do we notice The Pharisees are now directly confronting Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 2, they say to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Remember the scene. The disciples were plucking off heads of grain off of the wheat, and they were eating them as the law ultimately allowed them to do. But the Pharisees had their own man-made rules, and They considered this a form of work according to their own tradition, and uh, so they confront Jesus. Of course, we know what Jesus does, though. He corrects the Pharisees. He points out how they are contradicting Scripture itself, and uh, this obviously doesn't sit really well with the Pharisees, and so not long after this, we read in verse 14 that the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. So... We know these guys are not fans of Jesus. They would like to rid the earth of his presence. And this is a significant moment in Matthew because this is ultimately where Jesus is fully rejected by the leaders of Israel, the height of which is when Jesus, as you might remember, is accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so from this moment, 
Here's what we notice happens in Matthew. We notice how Jesus' ministry becomes increasingly private as we see a number of withdrawals from the public sphere. And I've mentioned this before. I've mentioned these withdrawals, but I want to mention them again, how there is, in particular, uh, repeated kind of a repeated cycle of withdrawals. And the cycle goes something like this. First, Jesus withdraws, <laughs> withdraws, then Jesus cares for a group of people, and then he is rejected or meets further opposition from the Jews. So consider Matthew 13. Jesus speaks in parables. There's seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Then he withdraws to his hometown of Nazareth. And what happens there? Of course, he is rejected by those in his own hometown. Then after this, Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist, and then he withdraws to the wilderness where we know he is followed by a large crowd of Jews, and he, um, he crosses the Sea of Galilee, and these people catch up with him, and he cares for them, and he feeds them, and, uh, and then he crosses back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and then what do we read in Matthew 15:1? We're told that then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So another confrontation, more opposition, Pharisees continuing to be quite cantankerous. Then after this, Jesus withdraws again. But we notice how this particular withdrawal is, uh, withdraw, <laughs> withdrawal is different because now we notice something new, how Jesus moves well beyond the jurisdiction of Herod and well outside of the domain of the Jewish leaders and into a region that was very pagan and Gentile. And the reason for this, you might recall, was simple. Uh, Jesus was seeking to escape certain pressures in this Jewish-dominated community. And so, on the one hand, there were pressures from those that were really excited about his power and his works and they wanted to, I guess, create some sort of a revolution and they wanted to force Jesus onto the throne as king. But then Jesus also faced the other pressures of people wanting to kill him. And we know that this was uh, something that just happened with Herod as he put John the Baptist to death. So... That's what happened in that withdrawal. And, uh, and so, so what Jesus does is, is he seeks refuge. He seeks to get away into a predominantly Gentile area. And he's trying to escape these pressures. And, uh, and, and frankly, he finds a very surprising reception among this group of people. He goes as far north of the region he's been ministering um, that he gets to Tyre and Sidon. And uh, wouldn't you know it, he's trying to lay low, not necessarily start a new frontier of ministry, but he, he can't remain hidden. He's eventually recognized by a Canaanite woman who comes to him and has a demon-possessed daughter, and she's pleading for Jesus' help, and he helps her. And shortly after that, Jesus travels to another, what is a predominantly Gentile community, and he feeds another multitude. And and this is a special moment because, again, just the reception of Jesus. I mean, these people, they weren't just with Jesus for one day as the Jews were. They were with Jesus for three days. And we're told that they do something the Jews never did, is that they glorify the God 
of Israel. They can see who Jesus is. They can appreciate this God. So Jesus, and anyways, experiences this wonderful time um, as he goes to this predominantly Gentile community, and he comes back into the domain of Herod and the Jewish leaders, and of course, as he comes into this setting again, what happens? Well, as soon as he, as soon as he gets into the area of the Jews again, he is immediately met with opposition. And again, we're thinking, well, okay, yeah, we've seen this before, right? But have we? Have we? Not really, because there's something different about this particular moment that I want you to notice, and it's the fact that this is the first time that the Pharisees and the Sadducees approach Jesus together to oppose him, uh, which frankly should stun us as the readers, if you know anything about the Pharisees and Sadducees, because they were rivals and antagonists of each other within the leadership of Israel. You, you would perhaps know that they served on the Sanhedrin together, which was kind of the governing body of Jews. Uh, however, even though they served on the Sanhedrin together, they strongly opposed each other due to their extensive, and I do mean extensive, doctrinal differences. For instance, just consider the following. The Pharisees believed in miracles. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed in the oral tradition or the tradition of the elders, but the Sadducees did not. Those are pretty big differences, if, if you couldn't tell. The Sadducees were essentially the ruling class in terms of the Jews. They didn't really have the heart of the people like the Pharisees did. And because of their position of power, they truly sought to maintain that power through whatever political means necessary. But just remember the Pharisees and Sadducees. They are not friends, but foes. And yet here they are, and we find them together opposing Jesus. And why is that? Frankly, because Jesus is a threat to both groups, but for different reasons. The Pharisees are threatened by Jesus because he clearly teaches against their customs, against their traditions. I mean, it was pretty pointed when Jesus said, you teach as doctrine the commandments of men. Very bold statements Jesus had for the Pharisees. But of course, the Sadducees are also concerned about Jesus. He is one who continues to speak about a kingdom, a kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven. And he, of course, is the Messiah of this new kingdom. This, the Sadducees could perceive as a great threat. Well, a new Messiah, a new reign, a new rule. What does that mean for us? So that said, as we uh, see things play out here, there are really just two important lessons I want us to take in. And two lessons that I think are going to help us understand the importance of discernment in a wicked world. And what we understand through these lessons is not only the nature of belief and unbelief, but we also understand uh, the need for watchfulness of strange and foreign and false teachings in a deceptive world. So 
Two warnings, ultimately, is what we're going to look at today. Two warnings to hopefully prevent us from drifting into error. So what are these? The first warning I would have for you is this. First, beware of those who demand more proof. Beware of those who demand more proof. Notice what the Pharisees and Sadducees do. We're told they come to Jesus to test him by asking for a sign from heaven. Naturally, we think, well, you know, what are these guys exactly looking for? Because hasn't Jesus already performed a number of signs, a number of miracles? And yeah, he has many of them, right? Everything from healing a centurion's servant to calming a storm to casting out demons to healing a paralytic to raising a ruler's daughter from the dead to opening the eyes of the blind to walking on water and helping others to walk on water to healing a Canaanite woman's daughter and of course as I've mentioned even feeding between 15 to 20,000 people twice with just a little bread and some fish so yes we've seen plenty of miracles the Pharisees have seen plenty of miracles but they want more they want more like just imagine if someone said well prove to me that Michael Phelps is a world-class swimmer and you would respond with well we know this is the case because Michael Phelps is actually he, he's one of the most decorated Olympians of all time with a total of 28 medals and in fact he holds the record for the most gold medals out of all Olympians to have ever competed and yet after that they go yeah but is that all right like Jesus miracles overwhelmingly prove who he is it couldn't be on fuller display yet here the Pharisees are saying I need we need to see more the general belief is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are searching for a sign that is such a grand display of the power of God that it would seem completely impossible to refute or dismiss as evidence of who Jesus is. A sign from heaven, some believe, uh, refers to a sign from God that cannot be argued or misinterpreted because it's so apparent and so obvious that it precludes the need for any interpretation altogether. Many believe this would be a sign that would literally be displayed in the skies or in the heavens, suspended above the earth, perhaps written in the clouds. That's the kind of sign that they were demanding, and that sign would be in contrast to the signs of earth, because Jesus has performed all of these works on earth. Let me ask you, have you ever met someone like this? I gotta believe you have because they're all over the place. People who regularly say, well, I mean, I'd believe in God if he did this. I'd believe in God if he did that. I'd believe in God if he would save my loved one's life. I, I would believe in God. I'd believe in Jesus if he deposited $3 million into my bank account. Right? I, I'd believe in Jesus if I won the lottery and then I'd, I'd give a bunch of that money to charity, which we know never happens. And before you know it, that person's broke anyways in very short order. 
So many demands people make on God. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're here today and you've been thinking the same things and you've been going, uh, you know, I realize that you have given us all of these stories in the Bible. I, I realize that you have preserved uh, knowledge of what Jesus has done on the earth, not only in the Bible, but even beyond that, there's extra biblical material to support this. But I'm just not sure I'm ready to give up my life to Christ. So you say, I need to see more, more proof, more evidence. But the question is, would that really change things? Would it? Because frankly, if you listen to what Jesus is saying, he'd argue to the contrary. Since he points that, points out that in actuality no amount of proof or evidence will ever cause someone to believe. Did you know that? No amount of evidence or proof will ever cause someone to believe in Jesus. It never has and it never will, either for you or anyone else. And if you don't totally understand this, then I want you to contemplate the statement Jesus makes in verse 4. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In other words, the reason the religious leaders sought a sign is not because they were lacking proof, again, or evidence or information, but because they were evil. They want a sign because they have evil, sinful, corrupted hearts. And you know something? That's always the case when it comes to unbelief. When people hear the good news of Jesus and they reject it, it's not because the message is flawed. It's not because God has not revealed himself perfectly, but because their hearts are evil. You see, the fact is that people don't believe because they don't want to believe. Moreover, people are unable to understand because they're unwilling to understand. It's, it's a problem of the heart. I'm not sure if you've noticed this uh, before, but there are many people today who kind of start with the assumption as though everybody's in this neutral place in terms of their logic and their reason. And so even the goal in evangelism then is to essentially help people get over the hump of their unbelief by supplying the proper arguments and defenses for Christianity. There are also those who think if they perform enough signs or healings, then this will get someone over the hump. Maybe you've heard of power evangelism. The idea is that uh, you, know, you go find someone sitting on a bench and you ask them if they have some sort of illness or ailment or malady, and, and then you pray for God's healing. And then when God heals that person, then, then they'll follow up by asking, well, would you like to know who it is that healed you? But does that actually bring people into saving faith? No, it's a complete lie and a false hope. And why? Because no one is, is neutral in their thinking. No one. None of us are neutral in our thinking. It's why for years theologians have spoken about something called the noetic effects of sin. Sin affects everything. It affects our will. It affects our intellect. It affects our reasoning and our thinking. And since this is the case then, what does it require if someone is to understand who Jesus is and actually believe in him? It takes a supernatural work of God's spirit 
whereby he causes someone to become born again and he gives them a heart to believe and he opens their eyes to the truth. To rub this in a bit, I'd like to show you this from Scripture uh, a little bit more. So if you would, just turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul writes here, In Ephesians 4, now this I say, verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their, what? Understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? Due to the hardness of a heart, that's right. You trace it back. They're lacking in the understanding. They're alienated, and they're ignorant. And what's the source? Due to the hardness of heart. It's a heart issue. We can also see this kind of played out. If you want, turn over to Romans. Chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 18. We read in Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Just think about what Paul has said here. There is overwhelming evidence in the world that God exists, and even we learn who this God is. We learn about his divine nature, his eternal power, and everybody even from the world that they live in is able to clearly perceive that this God who exists, that they should be submitting their lives to him, but they don't. He is holy in his character. There are things that we ought to do that we don't do, there are things that we shouldn't do that we do do. In all of this, though, what happens? According to this passage, people by nature suppress the truth of God. They refuse to believe that which has been revealed. They refuse to honor the Creator. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They are prone to idolatry, and they prefer lies over truth. So I hope you understand, again, it's a heart problem. And therefore, these people, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they're not innocent here because their mind, it's really already made up, right? 
And the only reason they really seek a sign is to entrap Jesus by finding something to use against him. They're not open to reason. They don't even think Jesus can deliver what they ask for, which is why they ask for it, to prove to others that Jesus is a fraud, to expose him. But Jesus refuses to perform the sign because he knows that even if he does, no amount of proof is going to persuade them at this point, right? And he knows that even if he did perform the sign they're asking for, what ultimately the result would be. All they would really do is accuse him of sorcery, as they've already done before. He casted out demons. Well, you perform those miracles by the power of Satan. They would just say the same thing. So what's Jesus' response then? Okay, well, if, if you do want some proof, I'll give you proof. Here's your proof. I'll give you a sign. Here's your sign. The sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. And again, this is a deja vu moment because we actually have seen this before. Matthew 12, the same thing happened. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so the illustration is clear, right? And we know what the, the sign of Jonah points to, right? It is, it is the sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So think about this, friends. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest act, the greatest sign that God has ever performed to prove who he is. And because of this, there's no greater miracle that one could receive. And I want you to take this to heart because the next time you witness to an unbeliever, what is it that they need to hear? They don't need to hear a hundred arguments about why the Bible is true, though there are places to explain that to people. They don't actually need to see a miracle in the sky. What they need to hear is the gospel. The gospel is what God uses to save people. It is the power of God unto salvation, Paul says. The gospel is sufficient for God to do his work. And the fact is, if people reject the gospel, there's nothing else you can do for them. I think sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves to persuade and to convince people that Jesus is worthy of their life. And we should labor with every fiber of our being to persuade, but at the end of the day, God and God alone persuades the heart. And it is not our place to take the work of the Holy Spirit. Understood? So beware of those who demand more proof. Of course, uh, the ignorance of the Pharisees and their unbelief was so great that Jesus says, I mean, here's the predicament you're in. You can actually rightly conclude what the weather is going to be in just several hours by looking up in the sky, you, you, but you can't even discern the times. 
So beware of those who demand more proof. Now let's look at our second lesson, which is this. Beware of false teaching. Beware of false teaching. Now as we consider the, this point, one thing I want you to notice is how there's a change of scenery. So in the last point, the disciples were on one side of the Sea of Galilee. Now they're on the other side. And Jesus makes this very interesting statement when he says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And really, this is it's kind of a funny moment when you think about it. And maybe when you've read it, you've, gone, you've kind of gone like, what's actually going on here? And I just want you to imagine it going something like this, right? Like, Jesus makes the statement, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then the guys kind of get together and, and they're like, hey, what's going on? What's the status of our bread right now? And they kind of look around for it and they're like, oh, we don't have any. And of course, if you don't have bread, just this is what I, you need to understand, is that as a Jew, the question now is, well, who are you going to get bread from, right? Because we've talked about how Jewish thinking was kind of you got to avoid all things that are unclean. If you don't have bread on you, you got to go get it from someone else. If you touch certain things the Gentiles touch, that's going to make you unclean. So I'm, I'm guessing the conversation is like, well, man, I guess we're going to need to find some bread from some Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and there even seems to be this element of like, does Jesus know we don't have bread? Finally, they're like, uh-oh, we're, we're in big trouble um, because Jesus, clearly his mind is on bread and he's thinking about bread and now we don't have bread and uh, we better just break the news to him. And so they finally they say, Jesus, we, we don't have any bread, which of course Jesus knew the whole time. He knew what the status of the bread was. Just funny, like, can you imagine that conversation? Like, what's in that bread? What's in that leaven? Too salty? too sweet what's this stuff the pharisees and sadducees are serving like jesus of course points out well guys it's not about the bread <laughs> it's not about the bread at all it's it's about the teaching really there's two things i want to highlight here the first has to do with the ignorance of the disciples and then the second is a point about the danger of false teaching first let's think about the ignorance of the disciples for a moment so jesus makes the disciples um, kind of think about bread or, or he makes the statement and that's where their mind goes and then he says why their mind went there he says oh you of little faith and and then Jesus says this he, he says guys like I mean weren't you there when I fed the 15 to 20,000 Jews you remember that day how you handed out the food. We started with five loaves. We fed all these people. And then afterwards, every one of you had your own doggy bag. Remember that, right? There was 12 baskets left over after that feeding. 12 disciples, they each had their own helping. Remember how that worked, guys? And then how after that happened, then we fed another 15 to 20,000 people when we fed all of these Gentiles. And after we were together for three days, everybody enjoyed this great meal together, and there was still plenty left over again. You ever just have moments like this? You ever look at the disciples and go, oh, man, these guys are ignorant. But I get it. 
I understand it. You ever just find yourself worrying about tomorrow when you've seen God show up time and time and time again? Like you've read so much scripture that has to do with God's power. You know what he's capable of. You also know his heart towards you. You know he loves you. You know he cares for you, but you're still left going, ah, is there going to be enough? Is there going to be enough of whatever? You all worry about different things. Is there going to be enough friendship, enough support, enough money, enough opportunity? That's where the disciples find themselves, and they were completely earthly-minded. And of course, it's not like worry was the only thing they struggled with. Sometimes they were dominated by self-interest. Other times they were concerned for their status. Other times they were spiritually lethargic. Remember the night that Jesus was betrayed? Jesus is there about to be taken from them, and rather than praying with him, they are sleeping. And I don't know, but in kind of a strange way, it provides at least me with some comfort, and I hope it does for you, and some, some hope. I mean, we can clearly see in the disciples just how painfully slow of a process that sanctification is. And so we kind of just ought to praise God that he is so, so patient with us, isn't he? I know we hate to admit this, but how often are the times that we live like practical atheists? I don't know what else you call it when a person forgets about God and focuses only on the world. And I say, as I say this, this is why our second point is so important when Jesus talks about the danger of false teaching because we do know that the very thing that God has called us to is is to become more like Jesus, to become more like him. God has called us to become increasingly more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We are called to be salt. We are called to be light. We are called to be holy as God is holy. And how does all this happen? By having all of our life permeated by the truth of God's word. It's God's truth that sanctifies us. It's God's truth that transforms us. It's God's truth that shapes and informs or is to shape and inform our every thought and every desire and every practice and every deed. Christians, do you want to grow? Do you want to be effective? Do you want to bear fruit? then stay away from false teachers and stay away from false teaching. Listen to what Jesus says. All it takes is a little leaven, a little false teaching, and it influences everything. It can influence everything in your life and affect it for the worse, which is why Jesus is constantly warning his disciples of false teachers. Interestingly, the word for beware occurs six times in Matthew, and wouldn't you know it, five of those occurrences relate to false teaching, where Jesus is warning his disciples to beware of the presence of false teachers. Uh, He warns them to beware of acting like false teachers. We could go back to 
when Jesus talks about prayer, beware of praying like the scribes and the Pharisees, making long prayers. He also says to beware of what they teach. And uh, when you look through the scriptures, you'll notice very quickly why this is. Wherever false teachers are, they cause absolute devastation. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 how false teachers promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Towards the end of the same letter, he talks about how they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. In Titus, Paul talks about how false teachers were upsetting whole families, which the idea of upsetting whole families literally was the idea of overturning families. Think of Jesus flipping tables over. They were homewreckers. And who can forget Jesus' picture a couple of weeks ago when Jesus called the Pharisees blind guides. And they lead the blind into a pit. Friends, the point should be clear. False teachers cause horrific horrible destruction. And of course, the odd thing is that they do this by making you think that they're completely harmless and actually what they have to give you is going to be beneficial. Jude says that false teachers are clouds without rain. Peter, in 2 Peter 2, verse 17, says they are springs without water. Both images show promise without delivery. False teachers promise nurturing, refreshing water, but don't provide any of it. And this was true of the scribes and the Sadducees, but it was true of all other false teachers as well. And Jesus pointed out other false teachers. He pointed out the danger of the Herodians, the danger of the scribes. There were so many false teachers in Jesus' day, and he was careful that his people always knew to look out for them. When's the last time you heard someone say today, Look out for this person's teaching. Look out, this person's a false teacher. You can't do that today because people will just think you're completely negative and judgmental, won't they? And certainly nobody likes to be the negative guy. Like nobody likes to be the negative guy. But we need to be willing to confront error and refute error and call out error where we see it. Interestingly, if you read Jude, clearly it was Jude's intention to write a positive and encouraging letter to his fellow Christians. That was his intention the whole time. But then Jude found that there was false teachers influencing the church, and then he changed his tune, and he needed, he knew to, he needed to address the false teachers because of how much harm they would do if he didn't. Look at, uh, well, just listen to Jude. Verses 3 and 4, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were de designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. God's people, I hope you understand, need to be warned of false teaching and false teachers. 
Each one of us needs to be aware of the many dangerous ideas that pop up all over the place. And as I've said before, I doubt there's ever been a time when there's been more ideas that have been peddled and passed around. So be vigilant. Be careful. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Are you taking every thought captive? Remember the questions, the most important questions to ask. What chapter and what verse? Behind every message we receive, there's a worldview. There's an answer being given to the nature of reality. Who is God? Who is man? What is salvation? What is ultimate reality? There's a worldview behind every message we receive. And so we need to be careful to constantly consider, does this match a Christian worldview? Does this match God's word? The ideas of this world certainly have all one thing in common. And we've noticed, we notice it even here. And what is it? Every idea that is raised against Scripture is hostile against God. Every false belief system, every false religion has this in common. They're all united in their opposition to Jesus Christ. And therefore, friends, I hope you, I hope you realize this then, that those ideas are going to be united in opposition to you if you stand with Christ and if you stand for Christ. Remember what Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Friends, you and I live in a hostile world, a world that is united against us, and so here's the encouragement of Christ today. Beware of those who demand more signs. And beware of false teachers. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.